it's BT with Tales from a Gemini. This episode is with my newest, bestest buddy, Jake Sanson. Jake Sanson is a commentator uh, for, for uh, World Karting. He's uh, the founder of Downforce Radio. And w- there's a congruency with our lives as far as like, the passion for motorsports that we have. And he also was the commentator, which actually he got a lot of um, a lot of press from uh, the uh, two carters, one through a uh, the front fairing and another Carter while he's racing full speed. And that's what kind of got him on the radar of, uh, of uh, the, the worldwide, uh, the worldwide stage. Basically we had a talk and this is a great talk, a fun talk. This guy, he still has a passion for racing. You could tell, I mean, not just the commentate, but the actual race. And you got to see this episode. I hope you love it just as much as we do. So we'll check it out with my newest, bestest buddy, Jake Sanson. Yes. It, this never gets old. Never. That's how you know it's about to get serious. Here we go. One, two, three. Hey, it's BT with Tales from a Gemini. My guest today, I am so excited because nobody geeks out on carding like I do, but this guy makes it a living. Um... He is the founder of Downforce, uh, Downforce Radio, by the way. He's the lead presenter there, and he's also the producer of Downforce Radio. He also builds Lego sets, which makes me endearing to in my heart, and he plays a mean game of Uno, and he also can play some killers on, a, on an acoustic guitar. He's my newest, bestest buddy, Mr. Jake Sanson. How you doing, Jake? I'm doing great, great, BT. Thank you, thank you so, so much, much for bringing me onto the show. It's a real pleasure. No, thank you for, I mean, you reached out to me, which honestly, that, that touched my heart because you reached out to me and I was like, thank you for that. And then I, I didn't realize you were the person who were there when Luca Cabrera lost his damn mind and threw the fairing at the, at the World Karting Championships. And you called that. And after that, I was like, this, this guy's legend. <laughs> I was indeed. Yeah, that was a crazy day. It was it was one of those moments where you realized we had gone out of hand when the New York Times was reporting on it. It's like that doesn't really happen in our sport. So you knew that it was a little bit out of control by that point. I mean, when did you realize, like, uh-oh, like, when did you realize he was going to throw it? Like, when he's standing on the side of the, of the, the track, and you're like, no, no. Uh, I, well, yeah, it was, it was a bit like that. I'm in the commentary box, and obviously the camera, it was my uh, colleague, Oleg, who was on that particular corner, and he managed, he likes to look at things that are controversial, if you can find them. So he kind of <laughs> saw Luca with the front fairing in his hand, and you never have a front fairing in your hand, unless you're going to do something with it in this sport. You're never going to. So the second it cuts back to that point, I'm sitting there thinking, Luca, this is not going to do you or the sport any favors at all. And obviously we're still live. We're live on air at this point. We're live to, you know, thousands of people worldwide. And it's like, please don't do it. Please don't do it. You're trying to stay professional and composed at the same time. And I could tell he was about to throw it about seven seconds before he did it. Because you can see on the picture, again, if you look at it, he's looking for Paolo Ippolito. He's waiting for him to come by. And it's just the most ridiculous, you know, loss of, you know, mental capacity in one small moment from an athlete. But I just could not believe how big a deal it was in the media. I mean, it went around Reuters, it went around the BBC, it went around Sky News in multiple countries. 
And then by the time, yeah, it got to, you know, American news journalism, I thought, this is ridiculously out of hand now. So, yeah, it became a massive, massive moment. And, you know, I was hoping to go viral as a motor racing broadcaster. That wasn't quite how I would have chosen to do it. But, hey, it's it, a lot of people now talk about it, even so, two years later. Well, it, it, you know, it, it's funny in a way, but it's also it also sucks because the sport is great. But unfortunately, you know, it, it, it's a neat sport, which is great because it's people like me, dorks like me who get into it and love it. But for the, the, the grand public, they have no idea until something like that happens. And then unfortunately, you got to capitalize on it. So did that did it help you? Did it did it increase your earning potential or did it uh, give you an uh, uh, open door to other uh, races? It's a really good question. I've never really thought about it before. Um, it was just kind of one of those weird things that happened in the moment. It's certainly got a lot of people talking about it and certainly got a lot of people messaging me and kind of saying, you know, what was that like to commentate on in the middle of that? What a lot of people don't know, and I haven't shared this out to many places, is um, there's obviously footage of that uh, moment where he threw the front fairing. And then there was footage that emerged after the race of him then attacking his rival in the holding area afterwards. He beat his what ass. Pe- <laughs> what, what people don't know is that uh, about five laps, six laps to go before the race ended, there's a part of my commentary where I start to really struggle over my words. And it's because I'm struggling to concentrate. Right behind me, there was the mother of all boxing matches going on, which turned out to be between the two fathers of the drivers. They were having this out right behind my commentary box. So you're hearing like (laughs) bins clashing and bottles smashing and women screaming. It was just crazy. Absolutely bonkers. So yeah, one of the maddest days I think I've ever had in my career. Now, now, were they, uh, now, was he Spanish or Italian? Uh, they were both Italian, both Italian drivers. In fact, actually now, Luca Corberi is now obviously uh, still suspended and will be for the next 13 years. So I don't think we'll <laughs> see him back in the world of racing. But Paolo Polito, the other chap involved in it, uh, he is now actually fighting for the European Championship. He has a chance to win it two weeks from now in Cremona. So in actuality... You know, he doesn't like talking about the incident anymore, but in terms of what it's done for his morale, what it's done for his sort of resolve, he's actually become a really strong driver as a result of it. He's kind of internalized all of that negative energy and he's been bombastic ever since. He won at Adria last year. He was fighting for the victory at Genk. He could become European Championship winner next time in Cremona. So, yeah, it it really has changed his career for the better. Now, I'm one of those people, and it may sound bad, but I, I kind of like when, when things get a little, you know, a little, a little, a little uh, you know, how you guys uh, call it, RG Pargy, whatever, how you call it? RG Pargy, absolutely. Yeah, I kind of like that, and I kind of like a little, a little, you know, a little scuffle. I kind of like that in a way, as long as I'm not involved. I like a little scuffle because, honestly, I think it brings out, and, and listen, pressure like that, it either, it makes diamonds or it bursts pipes, and actually, it made him better. Now, now look, like you said, he's fighting for the championship now. So if this guy can go to Formula One, maybe who knows, or Formula Two or whatever, I mean, then it, it, was it a bad thing? No, I mean, you got to look at it that way. He took the positive route in it, and now mm. he's capitalizing on it. And you are also. Let's put it there, because think about it. They had to come to you, the uh, you know, the commentator, like, what did you think, blah, blah, blah. So it's going to increase your wealth, increase your work, and they'll see, oh, this guy's really good. And then I think everybody's going to benefit except for Luca Cabrera, obviously. 
I suppose. Yeah. I mean, it, it is funny. I mean, uh, I've certainly been asked to come on to more shows since it happened. You know, I've done a couple of different things. I've been on Across the Pond. I've been on F1 feeder series and now obviously with you as well. So it's kind of become a sort of a bigger deal. I, I sort of when you're in a, a sport like common uh, like motorsport as a commentator, you're in a very competitive environment. You know, you're competing against some amazing broadcasters around the world trying to get a decent job. You're there against the likes of David Croft and Lee Diffie and Martin Haven and all these amazing broadcasters worldwide who do the races that you want to be involved with, whether it's Formula One or Le Mans or IndyCar or whatever. So something like that, it, it's a double-edged sword because it can sort of shine a light on you as a broadcaster. And if you get it right, then it's fantastic. And if you get it slightly wrong, then it can really hamper you. Fortunately, I seemed to come up with the right choices of words in the moment. And my my line where I said, it's completely unacceptable. Uh, and I think I said, you know, Luca Corberry makes himself public enemy number one. That headline actually went viral with the video. So, you know, the, I came up with the right words in the right moment. It can be very tricky. Well, no, but you know what? It's the old saying. I don't know if they have it over there, but it's like, they say, stay ready so you don't have to get ready. And if you stay ready and, you, and you're ready for it, and when that time comes and, and it comes, it doesn't come how you think it's going to come, like, hey, you got the call up, I'm going to do a Formula One race. It comes in, in weird uh, situations like, as such. So now they know, hey, this guy is good. And because of some kind of weird thing that happened, hey, this guy's good. Let's give him a shot at this. And that's how it's probably going to happen for you. Well, we'll see. You know, I mean, I, I've done one Formula One race, which was back in 2019. I actually was working for the British Grand Prix pit lane channel. So I did one race. Uh, and, you know, it, it, I think I was kind of there essentially because uh, another commentator was away doing the New York E-Prix. So he was away and there was a, a vacancy that kind of came up last minute. And at the time, uh, I, there was some sort of waiver I had to sign. You know, I couldn't talk about it at the time. I wasn't allowed to talk about it until after it had happened. So it was a really weird experience doing Formula One for the first time. And yeah, now that I've done it once, I never have to ask myself again, am I good enough to do Formula One? Because now it's sort of happened. You know, the pressure's off a little bit. I don't have to think about that anymore. So I can still aspire to it full time if I wanted to. But it's certainly not something that, is going to be career defining now. You know, the fact that I've done it, it sort of takes the pressure off and I can now just sort of take each race as it comes and enjoy it for what it is, which is actually a really nice position to be in. I was going to ask you that because I had a, uh, another podcast with a, with a guy, another episode with, uh, with a friend of mine who's a, he won an Emmy uh, for a, a, a show he produced. And I asked him how that was. And he said, you know what? You work, you know, like you say, you aspire to do this and this, that. But when the time comes, you think you're, oh, this is it. But you just do the work and it just happens. You go to work like you always do. You wake up, you prepare and you do it. And you, like you don't call your parents, you don't call it. You just do the work. And when it's over, it's like, OK, I did that. And then you can and you just continue with life. And it's like not the big deal that you make it out to be. You just continue. And it, it was, is that how you saw it? Like, I, I think before, correct me if I'm wrong, please, but before it happened, like, oh God, if I could just get Formula One, if I could just get F1, and then you had that little call up, and it's like, okay, I did it. Okay, now, okay, if I don't get it, I'm, hey, I know that I'm good enough. I know that I am a, a good broadcast, and if, and if it happens again, great, but if not, I don't need them to validate my career. Yeah, so the buildup was the worst bit of it. The build up to it was really, really difficult because I'm there for five, six weeks knowing that it's going to happen, thinking, 
what if I mess this up? What if I screw this up? What if I, you know, ruin my career in the middle of Formula One? It's oh my goodness, the pressure that I put on myself was so intense. So when I get there Thursday, Friday, I'm obviously trying to do as much uh, data analysis as I could. And the commentator I was working alongside was Alex Jakes, who I have to say, such an incredible guy. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. He uh, has done Formula 2 and Formula 3 for many years now. He also does uh, the commentary for F1 Esports, uh, which is, you know, a really tough gig, actually. It's a lot tougher than the real world of motor racing because it's so different, but also it's so similar, if that makes sense. But no, he was a wonderful guy to work with. Very easy to put you at your ease and uh, really, really uh, complimentary. I think we kind of, the chemistry we had really actually worked, which was nice. But I was so locked in trying to make sure I got it right. I wasn't really in my best focus. And this was accentuated when a friend of mine, who's a Formula One journalist, a guy called Sam Hall, um, he said to me at one point, you are looking properly, properly stressed now, mate. You're really <laughs> looking, I, I've never seen you this stressed. And he said, come with me, come down to the pits. Let's just enjoy this for a few minutes. You've got some time. I've got some time. Let's go down to the pits and enjoy ourselves. I said, okay. So we went down and it happened to be on the Friday evening. And, um, we're there in the pits watching a few of the teams, uh, doing their wheel changes. And, um, this guy comes and stands next to us and he's in a leather jacket in Gucci loafers, Ray-Bans, really nice denim jeans, really, really cool looking bloke, slick hair. And he, English guy, and he turns to us and goes, how you doing guys? My brother, I thought, yeah, 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 really cool. He said, it's my first time. I'm really enjoying it. Said, yeah, really good, really good. And he was really friendly, really pally, really chatty. And I didn't really twig who it was. I didn't really get it. And then he turned away. And I turned to Sam and went, I know that guy from somewhere. I don't know where I know him from. And he went, you idiot, that's Daniel Craig. <laughs> what? <laughs> I've just been casually chatting to James Bond of all people. He's just there enjoying himself for the first time, you know, deer in headlights in Formula One. And I haven't even clocked him for being James Bond. I'm an idiot. So that was covered. And then we obviously, later on, uh, we got uh, the opportunity to walk out onto the starting line while the Sky Sports Formula One team were doing their pre-race build-up. Mm-hmm. And then we had this fantastic opportunity. Johnny Herbert was playing cricket with a couple of the people on the main straight. And we just got roped in to being his fielders. So we're there on the start finish line playing cricket with Johnny Herbert. I mean, how does this kind of stuff happen? It's really, really bizarre. And it just kind of happened out of nowhere. So yeah, uh, there were some really nice memories to take out of it. But, oh, it was very, very stressful at the time. Very stressful. How did, did you get that kind of like, uh, at least with me, whenever I, I like to think I'm a nice, well-adjusted guy. I've, I've done shows in front of 2,000, 3,000 people, whatever. But when I meet a racer, I, 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 it's like meeting that beautiful girl. You're like, ah, bah, 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 bah. I mean, <laughs> did you have that moment where you're just like, ah, and you didn't know what to say or you asked a stupid question? It depends on who the racer is. I still do it. Uh, it's funny, you know, I've been in this game for over a decade now and depending on who the racer is, I still do it. I can remember I was at the Goodwood Festival Speed one year and I got the opportunity to go up the hill climb in the Noble M600 Roadster with Damon Hill as the driver. Now, for me, that's the ultimate hero for me. When I was a kid growing up, Damon was the number one British driver. He was the world champion when I was 10 and I was so into the sport, so into him. So the chance to go up the Goodwood Hill climb with him 
I barely could string two words together. It was absolutely <laughs> astonishing. And I'm a professional commentator. This is my job. And it was so hard to say anything. We get to the top of the hill. And what they don't tell you when you do the Goodwood Festival of Speed is when you get to the top of the hill, there's a long wait when all of the cars on that run have finished and then they all go down together. So when you're at the top of the hill, you've got a bit of time to wait. And we had about 45 minutes, I think. And Damon being Damon, he doesn't like media. He doesn't like press. So when we switched the cameras off for the filming of it, yeah. I kind of said, well, that was really exciting. And then he said, would you like a cup of tea? Oh, no, there's an idea. You know, world champion offering you a cup of tea. And I hate tea. Absolutely what? hate tea. No. I'm a British person. I don't like tea. But you know what? I drank that cup of tea and I enjoyed every single sip of it. I was there with David Hill. Of course I drank the cup of tea. Of course I did. It was really, really enjoyable. So yeah, sometimes you get a little bit tongue-tied. The maddest one, I'll tell you the maddest one. I'll try and make it as quick as possible. Oh, the maddest one, Go ahead, have fun. 45 yeah. minutes of my career that I'll never, ever repeat but in that 45 minutes, it's the maddest 45 minutes ever. I got the chance to do Le Mans for the first time. Now, for me, that's the ultimate race. It's the race on the planet. The Le Mans 24 hours, it's coming this weekend, actually. And it, for me, it's the ultimate race. It's one of the few races on the planet that's bigger than Formula One in terms of its worldwide reach. Yes. Um, movies have been made about it by Steve McQueen, Matt Damon, Christian Bale, some of the great... Uh, Hollywood people have had an infection from Le Mans. They are just yes. gripped. It's an absolute addiction. And I got to go for the first time 2016. And they thrust you into this amazing world, which is a bit like walking down a giant Lego set. It really is. There's so much color. There's so much noise. There's so much passion. And the celebrities, when you look around on the grid, I mean, 2016 was a big one. I mean, there were people like Jason Statham and the singer Katie Melua was there and all sorts of Chris Hoy, the Olympic champion. He was actually competing in the race. So there were some big, big names. Uh, and it was the year that Ford came back to Le Mans after many, many years they hadn't competed. So it was a big race anyway. Yeah. So I'm there with my headset and my um, radio and the producer says, right, go and find the team from KCMG. They had a crashing warm up this morning. Let's go and find out why. Okay, so off I wander. And um, I chat to the team manager. And he's talking to someone. I can't quite see who it is. But I say, I'm really sorry to interrupt. Um, we just need a bit of data, a bit of info on what happened in the crash this morning. And he says, no, no problem at all. That's absolutely fine. By the way, have you met Jackie Chan? What? <laughs> <laughs> that just happens to be who he's having a conversation with. So Jackie reaches his hand. Hi, nice to meet you. Oh my goodness. Yeah, nice to meet Jackie. So I'm shaking hands with Jackie Chan. That's not what I planned to do when I woke up that morning, you know? And I, I do my best, you know, professional thing and yeah. shake hands with Jackie. Oh, very nice. Get my information, walk away, writing my notes. Nine-year-old me in my head here is, I just shook hands with Jackie Chan. Oh my God. Just carry on. And I'm writing while walking. Terrible idea. Don't do it. I'm walking while writing. And I crashed straight into somebody from uh, Proton Porsche. I'm like, oh my goodness, I'm so sorry. And I figure out who it is. It's Patrick Dempsey. No. This is, this is literally <laughs> only the kind of stuff that can happen at Lamar, right? This, is, this would not happen anywhere else. I crashed straight into Patrick Dempsey. We get chatting. Hello, mate. How are you? Uh, nice to meet you. And it, was, it ended up being quite friendly and amiable, so it was crazy. And then I get this in my ear from the radio, from the producer. It's like, Jake, Jake, it had started raining by this point. Jake, they've just announced they're going to start the race behind the safety car. 
we need to find out how this is going to work because it had never happened before. We didn't know right. the procedure. Get to the front of the grid, find someone from FIA and figure out what we're going to do. Uh-huh. So I dash down the straight, past Ford, past Ferrari, past Porsche, past Audi, past Toyota, get to the front of the grid. And the only guy from the FIA there is Jean Todd, the guy who ran FIA at that point. He was the head. And he's having a conversation with Brad Pitt. <laughs> what is going on here? Seriously, the trifecta. You got the trifecta yeah, of movie that's stars. It. It's the hat trick. And I say to the I say to Jean-Luc, he's in my ear, like, I can't chat to Jean Todd right now. He's having a chat with Brad Pitt. That's the height of rude. I'm not interrupting that conversation. He's like, you've got 15 minutes. You have to. He's the only one there. If he's the only one there, you've got to find. Oh, no. I can't interrupt the conversation that's being had with Brad Pitt. Okay. So I, I, I reckon, right. Well, Jean is French. I'm half French by birth. My father is Parisian. So I think, right. Okay. I'm going to hit him with my best schoolboy French. That's my icebreaker. So in my best French, I say, I'm from the commentary team. I just wanted to find out what the procedure is going to be with the safety car. And bless him, Jean Todd, he's a wonderful guy, very sharp-witted. He said, you can speak English to me, you know. <laughs> he could tell I was English straight away. I was like, how did you know? So good. Wait, no, give me said, your French. Um, no, give me your French. How did you say it in French? How did you say it? I want to hear what so you exactly said. So I said, said uh, uh, how, how did I say it? This is the thing. I'm not even thinking in French. So I'd have to figure out how I'd say it. Uh, excusez-moi, je suis le uh, speaker pour la télévision anglaise, uh, pour les CEO. Uh, je voudrais uh, connaître les infos pour les uh, uh, comment de l'équipe. Uh, uh, I can't do it. See, this is terrible. Uh, my grandmother would be absolutely ashamed of my level of French now. She would be terrible, uh, terrified. Uh, anyway, he understood. This is your pop quiz yeah, he, right here. You got to be exactly. ready, buddy. You got to be ready. Exactly, uh, exactly. He understood, fortunately. So he said, uh, Brad, this is, uh, what was your name? My name's Jake. He said, uh, Brad, Jake, Jake, Brad. So a handshake, nothing else, handshake. But he's got a firm handshake. I'll give you that. Anyway, um, <laughs> he explains to Brad and to me how the race is going to start because Brad had to go onto a sort of a, a, a platform podium at the start of the race and the cars would drive to the left and to the right of him to start the race. They wanted a bit of ceremony. And I'm writing this down so I know I get it right for the broadcast. And Brad looks at Jean and goes, so they're going to go either side of me while I'm stood there. And John says, yes, I hope this is okay. And Brad goes, that's totally awesome. <laughs> <laughs> he seems to me like a pretty decent blow. I, that, that's pretty cool. So yeah, and that's the kind of, you know, the 45 minute window of your career that's never, ever going to be repeated where you just, you're completely shell-shocked. And that was very much a sort of a, I have no idea what to say kind of a day. But yeah, sometimes you get really, really crazy days like that. That's beautiful, man. It, I mean, do you, have you pinched yourself yet? Like, I can't believe this is what I'm doing for a living. Yeah, every day. You know, it's really funny. I, I guess when you get to the stage of your life, when you're 25, and the one thing you know you should be doing with your life and that you're going to be amazing at if you get the chance isn't happening, you spend so many years thinking, that's my job. That's what I'm good at. That's what I should be doing. And it isn't happening. You just start to tell yourself that it won't happen and that you don't deserve it to be happening. Otherwise it would happen by now. Right. So that's, that's the mindset you get yourself into. And I suffer from terrible imposter syndrome all the time. You know, it, it's a really big deal. When I get on the plane, 
now even still, I have this worry that I'm going to open my phone and my WhatsApp message is going to be there going, sorry, you're out. And we found someone else. I still have that worry. It doesn't matter what form of racing it is, whether it's karting, whether it's bikes, whether it's cars, whether it's trucks, whatever it might be. I still get that little pang of worry that I'm going to look at my message and it's going to be, yeah, you're out. Sorry. And I think it's just because you spend so long wanting it and chasing after it. And if it doesn't happen, then you have to try and figure out why it's not happening. And so it's difficult to justify it when it does. Well, okay. I am glad you said that. I I feel like I'm going through the same thing. I've always gone through the same thing. I feel like, man, maybe it's not going to happen, but I just still, for some reason, I don't know how you do it, but it's like, there's always that one little glimmer of hope that you get a little nibble here, a little nibble there, something different, something like, you know, I started this podcast and it give, and it gave me a, a oomph to my career. And I love mm-hmm. doing it. I love finding out about people I don't know, like yourself. I love that. And it's like little things here and there, or I get like a, uh, like I'm shooting a, another comedy special here. And it's always those little nibbles and you go, okay, maybe I'm on to something. Maybe it's going to lead here. But I, I, I'm glad you said that. And what keeps you going to where you haven't given? up because I mean like you said I think you know you have that goal okay I'm gonna go and it's not happening and you maybe feel frustrated your head against the wall what makes you still keep striving and, and keep wanting to get better and keep doing it that's such a good question I don't think everyone's ever actually asked me that before what keeps me going um I think it's just the thrill of the chase uh, we have this television show in the United Kingdom called Only Fools and Horses. I don't know if you've ever come across it, but the plot line is these two brothers and they're desperately trying to make the millions. They're wheeler dealers. They trade on the streets of uh, this place called Peckham in London. And they're doing dodgy deals and nicking this and pinching that and doing what you do to try and get ahead. And then there's this point, I don't want to spoil too much of it, but there is a point when you know they find something that's worth an insane amount of money and they finally get it's sold at Sotheby's and they make their millions. And there's this scene towards the end of the episode where it's like, well, I kind of enjoyed the chase. I kind of enjoyed the sort of the lifestyle of trying to go for the top stuff of it. So I'm not in Formula One full time. I don't know if I ever will get there because there's some incredible talent in F1 at the moment. There's some amazing people and they're adding to the talent all the time. And it's more diverse as a broadcast team than it's ever been, which is amazing. And it needed to be. So is there space for another over-enthusiastic English white broadcast commentator. I don't know if there is, you know, because there's so many of them and there already always has been. So, you know, you have to kind of figure out, you know, if you're not going to be enough of a commentator, enough of a broadcaster, if you don't have Formula One, then I don't think you're ever going to be good enough or happy enough or satisfied enough if you have it. So that's kind of my, my way of looking at it now is that, you know, I enjoy my race weekends. I enjoy the sort of the little pleasures, the moments where I do this regularly. You know, you're stuck in the airport for three or four hours and you accidentally bump into two or three of the drivers and you go, right, well, let's get the Uno out. Let's go and have some cards. Let's go and have some muck about. And then you think, well, in 10 years time, they're going to be in Formula One. I played Uno in Copenhagen Airport with a Formula One driver. You know, it's those little moments, those little things. And I look at drivers now like Lando Norris and George Russell, who are in Formula One. And, you know, when I was in my first year uh, as a motor racing broadcaster and commentator, the very first racing driver that I did an interview for for television was a little kid called George Russell. And there he is now as Lewis Hamilton's teammate. You know, yeah. that's that, that's it's quite an incredible window into the future being involved in karting because there are so many talents that come through. 
And I quite like being involved in that. Every now and then you get a message from that driver now that they're up in sort of Formula 3 or Formula 2 or whatever. And, you know, you cross paths again and they, they sort of remember it. So I, I suppose I live for the, the little pleasures every day. The fact that, you know, I go to some amazing places. I hang out with incredible people. Uh, I go to fantastic venues and all I have to do is talk about it. You know, that's, you know that's, that's the end of it is all I have to do is talk about it. It's, it's funny you say that because it, they always say it's always the journey. And sometimes, you know, it's like, I'm kind of sick of the journey. I want the destination. <laughs> but when you look at in retrospect, as you're going through the journey, if you can live in the now, and that's so easy to say. It sounds like something that you just say to make yourself or, or sound, you know, big or whatever, whatever. But it's so true. I haven't read a book about being in the now, like enjoying mm. the now. And so... On your way to the journey, are you enjoying the now? Like, okay, you know what? Is there like a little part of you go, okay, man, I wish I had been Formula One. But like you said, you're sitting there talking to a guy in Formula Three or whatever, and you know he's, you know, he's got the talent. He's gonna come up. And like you said, you're having maybe, you know, having a, a tea. Well, you hate tea. Or maybe you're having a, a beverage with him, or you're playing a, a, a game with him. Uh, you know, like a, a game of Uno with him, and you're just yeah. having a chat with him, and you know he's gonna be big time. And maybe later on down the line, you get a text from him like, "Okay, is that enough to sustain? Like, okay." That is, is that enough for you? Or like, do you still go, you know, damn it, I still want that final destination. Will it be enough? Is the now enough for you? Or, or like is there a sense of... That's a uh, really good question, you know? That's a really good question. Uh, I'd like to think that most days it is. Most days it is. I mean, obviously, um, I'm autistic. So that kind of makes things a little bit more... Uh, acutely profound sometimes you get those moments where self-doubt and imposter syndrome really creeps in and you kind of feel like I get into a rut with sort of my you know workaholic nature I have to be working I have to keep pushing in order to reach my full potential I have to keep doing that and it's very difficult for me to sort of switch off and stop completely because if I do that then oh someone else might steal that opportunity someone else might get there first someone else might pick up the phone before I do so it's difficult sometimes to sort of prove your worth in my own you know way that I uh, measure myself so that can be quite tricky um is it good enough now at the moment yeah I think it is I think it is I mean obviously you, you know we all we all want to be millionaires we all want to be able to click our fingers and say you know I want to do whatever I want today and not have to worry about where the money's going to come from or where the time's going to go uh I think at the moment yeah you know I'm in a very comfortable position in terms of the sport I'm doing three or four championships at the moment which are incredibly exciting I do the FIA karting European and world disciplines for direct drive and gearbox, which is the pinnacle of world karting. I, I, it's, it's astonishing that I've got to that point. And, you know, five years on, it still feels like day one every time, which is a feeling that I really hope stays. I really hope I still get that sort of fresh feeling every time I turn up. And when the teams, you know, who have been there for many, many years, when Signore Robazzi, from Tony Kart, for example, comes up to you and says, you know, you're really doing a good job here. And they've been in the sport for 30, 40 years. So when you get a compliment from people who know the sport, who live and breathe it, and they're giving you, you know, the plaudits, that's when you know you're really doing a good job because they're the ones that, you know, devote their whole life and soul to it. So if you're getting the recognition from them, then you know that that's, you know, what you're supposed to be doing. 
Uh, I'm doing championships further afield now. Uh, I'm doing uh, championships in Japan without actually going to Japan, which is quite nice. Um, it makes it a little <laughs> bit easier. Uh, but I do. I, I would love to get out there. I'd love to get out there and have a look at it. But I'm doing uh, the Super GT and the Super Formula Championships in Japan, which essentially the only sports bigger than them worldwide is Le Mans for the sports cars and Formula One for the single seater. So it's a, n- a nice stepping stone to those again. So I'm, again, I'm sort of nudging on the ladder of the top spot all the time. And it's nice, you know, because occasionally someone will take a snapshot of something that somebody said on Reddit going, they're talking about who should be the next Formula 2 commentator, Jake. And look, your name has come up. And I'm like, these random people have put my name next to something. I didn't even know these people knew I even existed. I'm just just a a mental 36-year-old autistic shouty bloke who plays guitar (laughs) and occasionally, you know, crashes into people on iRacing. I shouldn't have any major recognition. But... It's weird, you know, sometimes you, the, the, the maddest thing like that, uh, the maddest thing like that was when I did an event in Kuala Lumpur. I'd never got the chance to go to Asia and it was just a, run, a one-off random event that was hopefully going to lead to something just before COVID. And I get off the plane at Kuala Lumpur, I get to the circuit and I'm not joking, I was treated with sort of red carpet treatment almost. And I wasn't prepared for it at all. Yeah. I was not prepared. All these top racing drivers from Asia in uh, senior and junior in the cadets, they all kind of came forward and like, oh, you're Jake Sanson. Oh, we've been re- really excited about you coming. They, were told, they told us you were going to be coming. I was like, I really did not feel like an A-list celebrity at all. <laughs> and that's kind of how they, they were treated. They were very kind. They were very, very gracious. And I was, I was a bit baffled by it. But yeah, it was really, really strange because I, I don't think you really understand or appreciate how much you are valued as the window into the sport for certain people. And it's funny, I'll have like Twitter exchanges and Instagram exchanges with people who just love the sport. They're just a mad fan on a sofa. And, you know, I always felt when I was a kid, I would love to have engaged with those people who get to talk about it. I would love to have engaged with Murray Walker, for example, or I'd love, would have loved to engage with, you know, Paul Page from the world of IndyCar back in the day. Yeah. And so if somebody messages me like that, I kind of feel like I have to message them back. I kind of feel like, you know, it's, like, it's the very least I can do yeah. is to give them that message back. You know, they, they want to talk to me. My goodness, my name must mean something then. So I feel like I have to sort of engage back. And I've actually had the chance to meet with occasional fans at racetracks, which is really nice. So it kind of, it kind of sets the tone for the rest of my career. If I want to be that sort of person that engages with people and, you know, really sort of connects with them, I think it'll pay me back. So that's always kind of been my way of going about it. I'm a firm believer that it, everything is set in the stage for you later on that when it like like we just talked about when it does happen it won't be such much of a shock because you've done your groundwork, you've done it all. Mm. So when it happens, it'll just be a steady progression in life. It'd be another level that you'll achieve in life and it, and it won't be that much of a jump. Where like sometimes, you know, especially in the United States sometimes, you know, we get on to like professional athletes, like rookie athletes who spend a lot of money and, and blow a lot of money in their career. It's like, mm. no, you know, if you're 19 and you're signing this much money and you have, and you're coming from a background where, you know, it's not the greatest background in the world and you're all of a sudden you get, you know, literally guys have gone from from having three hundred dollars in their bank account to five or ten million, so you know how how are they not going to ball out for whatever and get in trouble? I mean, I understand that. Where you, it's a steady progression. It's like okay, boom, and you're looking at your career. Okay, I'm, I'm rising here, I'm rising here. Okay, ten years have passed. I'm not where I want to be, but 
you're steadily rising and you're making connections and it's and it's sincere it's in sincerity also it's not fake so you're at that level like i said you're talking to people and you know george russell knows you so when you get to that level maybe it's 10 years from now or whatever when you get there it'll be just oh hey george how you doing hey good to see you mate mm-hmm. and it's and it'll be just like it'll be just like you're going to uh, to a, the World Karting Championship, although on the biggest level, you know, on the biggest level there is, mm-hmm. and it won't seem that much because you've done that groundwork. And I think, and I think that's what's going to happen to you. And I'm going to ask you this: Do you feel is there a little, even though you mentioned it earlier about, and I think it's great too, the diversity movement. I see Naomi Schiff in the, uh, you know, uh, doing the, you know, the interviews in, in the oh, paddock. She's whatever. spectacular. I'm is so she, glad she got her job. She's great, and, and there's another woman, and I, I forgive me for um, uh, forgetting her name. She does the, uh, I think she does uh, the FP maybe one or two before Crofty does. Oh, Natalie Pinkham, yeah, Natalie Pinkham, yeah. So do you feel like do you feel like maybe you're a victim of that? Maybe like uh, I mean, even though it had to happen, it does happen. But when that happens, some people fall by the wayside. And is there a little like ah, uh, you came along at the wrong time, or like you know it has to happen, but. It's an interesting question, but I, I, I genuinely feel that, you know, the, the sport does repay talent. It does recognize talent. So I'm, I'm actually genuinely, you know, as a, as a guy who's a father of two daughters and a son, I'm really glad that motorsport is really making a conscious effort to employ women who deserve to be in the roles they're in. And the thing I like particularly about the sort of, you know, the appointment of people like Natalie Pinkham, like Rosanna Tennant, like Naomi Schiff, they haven't given them jobs just because. Yes. And that's the thing. It would be very, very easy for them to do, well, we need women in the sport. Let's just put these women in. They've really given the opportunities to women who have worked hard, do their homework, have the good knowledge, have the passion, have the enthusiasm, have the talent, are willing to find more within themselves to bring it out of themselves. And, it, and it's so engaging. And I'm really, as, as a father of daughters, it's nice to know that my sport is actually making a real conscious effort to make that work. And it's fantastic. So as much as there might be a sort of a really jealous, selfish sort of pang occasionally, mm-hmm. You've got to look at it from the point of view of, well, the sport's improving and it's for the good of the sport as a whole. We've got a lot of work still to do, but with people like Sky Sports F1 and Formula One in general, really starting to bring these personalities out, I think it can only mean more good than bad. So, you know, as much as you've got to focus on your own career, if I look at it on face value, if I'm still doing the sort of the championships that I'm doing 20, 30 years from now and haven't really made it, to Formula One. I don't think I will have considered myself a failure because I'm still very much in the pinnacle of a sport, which is worldwide motorsport business. You still get a lot of recognition from it. I mean, we've just had the European Championships at Christianstad and Nelson Piquet Jr. was watching it on Instagram and he posted it. He posted it and just happening to be in the same room as him while he's watching it and you can hear him quite clearly is Max Verstappen. They're there watching it. So, it is a big sport. It may not have the same sort of recognition as Formula One or the Indy 500 or Le Mans, but it's still a big sport. And to the community, to the motorsport community, it still has relevance. It still has, you know, a real prominent place within the sport. So, yeah, I mean, obviously, if you could click your fingers and be in, you know, a multiple weekend work of uh, motor racing where you're earning a massive amount of money, who wouldn't go for it? But at the same time, I think, being in the position that I'm in now, it keeps you wanting to fight to climb higher. It keeps you wanting to be in a position where 
you know, you're doing the best that you can do. And I'm challenging myself every weekend to raise my game a little higher so that one day, you know, maybe Formula One will decide they have no choice but to call me. And that's, that's kind of, you have to sort of bring it out of yourself. You have to yeah. push yourself to that higher plane. You have to really drag as much talent and as much potential out of yourself to really achieve it. So if I'm not there and I'm not doing it, then the way I read it is that, well, I'm not good enough yet, but I'm definitely going to be. What makes the British such good? And I mean, commentators, I, I, I mean, I, <laughs> I will, I will not uh, belittle the, the American commentators. Ralph Shaheen is one of my best friends in the whole world. You know, who, oh, who I does love it? Yeah. I love Ralph Shaheen. I, uh, we had, uh, we had a couple of drinks uh, last week. He was in town. Love the guy. But what is it about the British? There's something about you guys when it comes to commentating. It's just like, it's like, it's like ice cream and cake. It, it's mm. like cookies and milk. I mean, you guys, it, you're synonymous with, with the voice of auto, just racing, motorsports, period. When, when there's a British announcer, I go, it's going to be okay. It's going to be a great broadcast. I think it's because so much of British industry and infrastructure is actually based around the motorsport industry. If you look at Formula One as an example, you know, seven of the 10 teams on the grid are based in the UK. And the sport has such a strong infrastructure within Great Britain. Most of the forms of motor racing out there have a London base. Mm -hmm. So the World GTs, their offices are in London. FIA Formula E, their HQ, I don't know if it still is at Donington. I know the buildings are still bedecked in Formula E, but there's a, it, there's a British foothold. So it's such a, an important country for motorsport because even though we're a tiny little island, you know, we still have a real beating heart and a real passion for racing. And, you know, the British Touring Car Championship, the British Superbike Championship, the British Formula 3 Championship, it's still been able to produce so many incredible competitors, uh, produced so much amazing racing, which is still watched worldwide. So I think because we're one of the nations in the world that really has a beating heart for racing. It's funny, a lot of the karting drivers from abroad They'll say to me, you know, how much do you, I asked them, how much do you love this sport? And they said, well, we've been watching British karting for a heck of a long time. We really like it. So again, it's a sport that people connect with, with the British world, just because it's one of those few sports that we're really, really good at. We're just really good at getting into a car and going quickly. I think it's probably because there's not very much else to do in most of the town centers <laughs> and city centers we've got. Just get in a car and go around corners really quickly. Uh, that, that's about all there is to do in UK. Uh, so yeah, we, we just get a real passion for it. And I, I suppose the, the sort of the British manner, that very sort of step up a lip, very matter of fact manner is really, really good for racing because we're able to sort of tap into a really vast vocabulary. I, I, that's how I do better at my sport. I, I spend a lot of time listening to Radio 4 and a lot of uh, comedy programs from the BBC, both television and radio, because you're always expanding you know, the words that you're using. You're hearing new words for the first time, figuring out how to use a certain turn of phrase. And I've now started, certainly as I've grown more confident in the industry, to bring those sort of things into my commentary. I'm very proud of myself. The other day, I actually managed to crowbar a line from Airplane into one of my commentaries. Which one? Which line was it? Which line was it? Which you line? You can probably guess. You can probably guess. Oh, give me a hint. Give me a hint. Give me a okay, hint. Okay, so um, the, the presenter, Kev, who does a, a bit of American karting as well, actually, um, he throws to me by saying, surely Caden McQueen can't make his way through the field <laughs> that quickly. What do you think I said? 
Uh, I, and don't call me Shirley. <laughs> yes, I did. Absolutely, I did. Yeah. Is that not- I said, thanks, Kevin. Don't call me Shirley. <laughs> I tell people all the time, that is, when you talk about the top three funniest movies of all time, it goes Airplane's Airplane, Airplane yeah. Animal House. Um, police Academy. And- the very first Police Academy. Okay, but it, okay, I, I give you that. But I tell you what, the two that no one talks about, I'm gonna get you, sucker, and uh, black black dynamite. Watch those black two. Dynamite. Black dynamite will have you howling. I'm telling you, man. But airplane. I remember going to see airplane when I was a kid because I was watching Wimbledon, and we were mm. going to see a matinee. And I think my dad dropped us off for some reason. It mm. Usually was my mom, but I think they were fighting. Anyway, uh, that's beside the point. But so my dad dropped us off to go see airplane. Mm. And me and my brother laughed so hard from the very beginning with the, with the wing. At, dun, dun, we were like, oh, <laughs> this is going to be a different movie. And I mean, to this day, when you watch Airplane, to this day, you still laugh. To I, this- absolutely right. There are certain movies out there that just haven't aged. I, <laughs> and I'm a big I'm a big movie fan as much as I am with everything else. I, I actually I'm still got this idea in my head that I'm going to start a movie podcast of some kind. Because uh, oh, I, I love the one. Oh, we could def. Okay, uh, uh, top of the head right now. Top three movies. Uh, no, top five movies. No particular order. Top Go. five movies. No particular order. Uh, top five. The Love top Bug five. because it's what got me into cars in the first place. And I Loved saw the you, Love Bug. And I saw you with the, uh, the with the Love Bug. I thought that was great. Yeah, yeah. That was that was quite a cool day. Uh, remember the Titans. Denzel Washington in his element. Yes. I mean, oh, he was born to play Coach Boone. He was absolutely born to. So that's a great film. Um, The Majestic, which is a movie that not many people have ever seen. It's Jim Carrey in a straight role. He was actually really, really good at it. It was the same director as Shawshank and Green Mile. Uh, And it's a story that's, it's a movie that's kind of passed everybody by, but I think it's a really amazing movie. Uh, Definitely one worth watching. The Majestic. Go look it up. Okay. Um, what else? Monty Python and the Holy Grail. I'm English. So obviously it's of one of the ultimate comedy movies. Gotta keep it real. Gotta keep it real. And uh, oh, the fifth one, it's not hard. The Breakfast Club. As far as I'm concerned, it's the ultimate teen movie. It's just legendary. Absolutely legendary. People give John Hughes uh, crap about, but it is a different time about, you know, not having enough diversity in his movies, but it was a different time and ever. But I, I really think 16 Candles, six to me, if you want the perfect for me it's great fun it's a great fun movie as far as teenage movies and teenage angst or just teenage just fun movies yeah i would put 16 candles house party mm. fast times at ridgemont high oh fast times at ridgemont high what a film absolutely I mean, incredible those three movies right there yeah. it, it, it me house party you can't beat house party think about it. having a party where your parents are gone hey let's yeah. have a party try not to break anything the toilet breaks i mean the toilet I genuinely breaks believe that, I, I genuinely believe that if 16 candles had never happened american pie would never have happened that's oh, that's how i look at it how great was american i mean yeah it was great fun <laughs> like warm apple pie you can't beat, i mean <laughs> you can't beat those movies you know what they're just fun it, it, yeah. i mean i don't know if you can even make a fun teenage movie now with somebody somebody getting triggered or whatever but those were just fun movies 16 candles when when he talked to molly ringwald and giving her you know her underwear and he held yeah, them up it's mental. And they st- my god those it's great- quite and, funny because being english we see those movies and we kind of go oh yeah this is this is really cool and it's there's this kind of like ideal of going to america and kind of experiencing that and thinking well we've got a cute british accent so we'll just walk in and get all the action <laughs> but then here in england we have movies that are sort of similar to 
that or try to be similar to that. We had Kevin and Perry Go Large, which is a hilarious film. Definitely worth having a look at if you haven't seen it. Okay. Uh, the Inbetweeners movie, which kind of got really, really big. Um, okay. I think I saw Both that. sides of the Atlantic because it was just so ridiculously silly. Um, and you've got things like 24-hour party people. Again, you know, the English just cannot be quite cool in the same way that the Americans have been able to manage. So we, when we make a movie that's a bit like that, but with an English twang, yeah. it's quite funny to sit back and just kind of go, yeah, we just don't have, we're, we're, we are the nation that is just constantly 17 degrees off cool. We just can't <laughs> no. quite get there. I we wouldn't say that. They, there was a movie, what was the movie last, well, I think it was a couple of years ago. It was with uh, Hugh Grant, Matthew McConaughey, uh, they play uh, 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 what was his name? Colin uh, Colin Farrell, and that was a cool movie. Also, that was a and the guy from uh, they played uh, from uh, uh, Sons of Anarchy. He, uh, he was he played a gangster or whatever. That movie was great. Oh, and you mean it was Kingsman? Cool- you mean Kingsman? Do you? No, it wasn't Kingsman. Oh, okay, it, it, it was Matthew McConaughey was in it. He was great as hmm. always. I mean, you. I forget the name of this movie, but it was a great movie. Hmm. I mean, we could talk movies all day. If I didn't, I didn't know you were a movie. The buff. gentleman, huh, the what now? The gentleman. The gentleman. That's it. The, the thank gentleman. You. Thank you, Wyatt. Yes. Hey, you're welcome. Sometimes Wyatt surprised me. Wyatt, sometimes. My word. Sometimes. Listen, Wyatt's 21 years old. Right. I love this guy to death. <laughs> we're so different from each other, but. He didn't know who Pearl Jam is. I had to tell him who Pearl oh, Jam was. Okay. Hey, me. Me. I had to tell him who Pearl yeah. Jam was. Me. Okay, I'm, I'm going to ask Wyatt a very quick question. Best okay. science fiction that's ever been written. Come on. What, what's, your, what's your option? Say it one more time. The best science fiction that's ever been made. Most people say Star Wars. Can you top Star Wars? Just in movies? Yeah, movies. Uh, movies or television. Yeah, absolutely. Anything, Wyatt? Anything at all? Well, don't go to would Google. Like, would like Game of Thrones count, or is that like more fantasy? Oh, uh, see, I was disappointed. I, I, I just had a feeling that you were going to say Firefly, and then we would have been friends for life. No, I've never <laughs> even heard of that. Wyatt will surprise you at sometimes yeah. at his. At sometimes he'll, you'll go, "Oh my god, Wyatt!" And sometimes you'll go, "Oh my god, Wyatt!" I mean, he's one of those guys. He really is. That's why I love the guy because sometimes you go, "Oh my god, why? How'd you know that?" And then you go, "Oh my god, how didn't you know that, Wyatt?" I mean, he's, so if I would give like you that. some homework. Um, this is ridiculous. This is, you, this is me being a secondary school substitute teacher coming out. <laughs> no, I'm going to give you some homework. Delve into Disney Plus tonight and go and absolutely binge the entirety of the series Firefly. Firefly. And then when you're finished, go and track down the movie Serenity that follows it. And I'm not kidding. You will wonder why you were so obsessed with Star Wars. Because it's it, it, Star Wars really? is good. Firefly is better. It's just okay. better. Yeah, no, I'll it's definitely the, look into it. I mean, I the, love Star Wars, but I'm just incredibly disappointed at what they're doing right now. It's all know. for the money, isn't it? It's oh, all it's all for, for the money. money. I don't want to break up the monotony, but I, I, I never got into Star Wars. I never. I tried. I do kind of get it. It took me a long time to really get it. Long time. I understand. I try. I, I literally when it when it came when it first came back the the big one with it when it Jar Jar Binks when they all hated when that came back I said okay I'm gonna try and I went yeah. and watched the movie and I fell asleep. I basically paid eight dollars for a nap. <laughs> I really did. I paid eight dollars for a nap. I remember that and I was like, I, <laughs> what am I doing here? So yeah, I I, I just quit trying. Fair enough. I Fair just enough. quit trying. I mean that's one yeah. thing. I'm, I'm not really 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 in this sun, the most science fiction. I'm not really into. I don't know why. I try, but I'm not. Some of it's gonna be some, a good concept. This is the thing, because it's space and because it's a million miles away from where we currently are, it's, it's very difficult to relate to it. What I like about Firefly is that it's incredibly relatable. It's basically a Western in space because nobody's rich. Nobody's got a decent amount of money. So they're surviving 
on a dust planet that's been terraformed and they're riding around on horseback. It's just, oh, it's just fantastic. Are they all it's space hobos? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, and, and the main protagonists are, they're running from the law. They're desperately trying to survive in a world where they are the outlaws, but they don't feel that they're the wrong ones. You, you know, they feel that the government has got it wrong. So they're just trying to do right. And they're just trying to live their life. And if they have to break the law to do that, then so be it. It sounds, and like boy, it sounds like Boys in the Hood in space. That's what it sounds like. Do you know what? There is actually an element of that. There is a bit of an element of that. It's got a very strong sort of vibe of that. It's really cool. It's worth a watch. It's really worth a watch. I kind of like that Boys in the Hood in space. Yeah. yeah what planet you from? <laughs> yeah. so it, it, it does Neptune. get a bit like that sometimes. Yeah, it's worth it. It is worth a watch. Uh, the, the other thing that makes it kind of unique is that um, the only two languages that exist in this world are English and Chinese. And they're interchangeable. So you'll be speaking English and then all of a sudden a Chinese phrase will creep into the language. So it, it's, it's oh. quite interesting. You kind of have to keep up with it a little bit. You kind of have to, you know, you, you have to sort of do a double take every time. It's really cleverly written. And the final selling point is that it's written, produced, directed, uh, and it's the brainchild of Joss Whedon. Well, I'm on it. How about you, I? After Justice League, I don't know. Justice League, uh, I, I don't really give much time to Justice League. I, I, the problem is I'm a Marvel fan. I'm not a DC man. Okay. I'm a Marvel man. I've well, always that, been a just Marvel that man. name kind of like gives me, you know, negative feelings when I hear his name. It depends on the stuff he's done. Yeah, no, you know, I, some I, of it, I, I understand. When, when you hear what's going on with him nowadays, it, it is quite difficult. I certainly can't watch Dollhouse again, knowing what I know about Joss Whedon now. I, I wouldn't delve right. into dollhouse a second time you know right no but i'll definitely i'll definitely check it out <laughs> firefly it's his masterpiece i genuinely feel it's his masterpiece he won the oscar for writing toy story he's obviously really famous for buffy and angel and angels of shield but firefly it's an absolute masterpiece let's challenge each other wyatt to watch that how about can, okay. can we do that can we challenge each other let's do that we're going to challenge each other let's wyatt. challenge each other okay we're going to challenge each other excellent uh, my, Mike, see, that, that's why I bring guests like this on. That's why <laughs> I bring guests like this, challenge both of us. With you, mad Lego sets on in the background. I, you know, I was going to ask you about this. Listen, I know it yeah. sounds like nothing, but when, you, when I saw your thing, you said Lego sets, and I go, you know what? And, it, and I mean this from the bottom of my heart. Like, I, I have a couple years on you, but mm. the, 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 when I elevated my Lego game, you know, you know, you have the basics, you know, whatever. But I, I went to the expert Lego, and it was I put together a go kart, and where okay. I, I would turn, I would turn the steering wheel, and the and the wheels and the axle moved, and it had a the, the number plate, and that's when I elevated my Lego game. So when you and your said life that, changed that day, didn't it? It really did. I mean, chicks, <laughs> I mean, chicks, chicks didn't come around, but still, I mean, I mean, not many chicks like Legos, but still, I wonder why they. Everyone I know despairs of me for this. Absolutely despairs of me it's like you're a grown man come on it's this is a kid's toy i'm like no it isn't it's over 18s these sets uh, that accounts for me i i'm in i'm in ducati has one which i'm gonna get do a ducati i can get a ducati uh desmo oh, yeah yes, that looks it, good in a lego set are you i don't care i'm at the stage now you know what <laughs> women are just uh they, they, they get on your nerves now i mean they're kind of annoying now i don't need that in my life i really don't i'm, I'm at the stage of my life i'll probably be alone for the rest of my life I, i've come to I, i'm at that. the stage of my yeah i'm 36 i'm at the stage of my life now it's like if you can't tolerate my little foibles if you can't tolerate the fact that i'm going to be sitting in the evening watching some ridiculous british comedy show and building a lego set 
then we're not compatible. It's as simple as that. We're not compatible. The sooner you know about that, the better. Because I ain't changing. I'm not changing now. How can you? How can you not love a guy like this? And I mean it from the bottom of my heart, man. I mean, I, I knew this was going to be good. I knew you were going to be a good guy, and I just, I, I, I found our paths similar. And I mean it from the, not even just saying that, just to say it, but mm. I found it similar. How you said, like, you know, is it going to happen? Is for me to want to happen? Enjoy the journey, and just and mm. growing up. And correct me if I'm wrong. Didn't you want to be a race car driver at, at one point, but, you know, your mom thought it was too dangerous and your dad, like, didn't support it? That was exactly it, yeah. So when I was about uh, six years old, I was uh, six years old was the first time I ever watched a race. I finally got the chance to give it a try in karting at the age of nine. Uh, we, my dad took me to the British Touring Car Championship finale at Silverstone. Mm-hmm. And round the back of Woodcut Grandstand, there was this little cub cart thing. And we're talking, this is not professional karting at all. It's one of those little things that has a lawnmower engine, uh, a sort of a, it has a sort of a roll bar, which is strengthened by the sort of material they use for bouncy castles. You know, these really t- <laughs> terrible thing. And the, the track itself is an inflatable barrier. It was terrible. Uh, but I thought, right, I'm a nine-year-old. I've got my first taste of this. I'm doing it. I'm going for it. So I got in and uh, I ignored the brake pedal. I did not use the brake pedal once. Just kept it on the floor, on the flat of the throttle the whole time and just hung on. And the guy were there went, mm, he's pretty good. And I thought as a nine-year-old, right, that means I'm meant to be a world champion. Come on, dad, come on. That's what that means. Complete childish notion. So the next year I get the chance, I'm on a summer camp and there are all these lists of activities that you can spend one day. You can go on a coach with several kids and you can go and do it. And one of them was karting. That's me. That's it. Doing it. So off we go to this fantastic circuit. I thought, uh, at Letton Hall <laughs> near Norfolk. It's one track lane. There's no overtaking spots on this track. It's somebody's back garden by the look of it that they've just put a cart track on. Um, but I think this is my moment. This is my chance. I'm going to get into this cart and I'm going to pedal it. And I did. I was like, uh, there were kids there that were like sort of 10, 11, 12, 13. I was the youngest and I was the fastest. I was the fastest by about 2.3 seconds was my quickest lap on it. And I was the only kid there who crashed because I was trying desperately to go faster. I was really pushing it. There was this one hairpin at the bottom of the straight where I think I could probably take that quicker. I could probably, it was a 90 degree. And I thought I could probably take that flat. I could probably hit the throttle and big mistake, big mistake. (laughs) I catch the curb on the inside it sends two on the deck, two in the air. So I'm sideways slant on and I'm drifting to the barriers. I hit it square on while leaning two wheels on the floor and two on the deck. So it barrel rolls me. I get thrown completely out of the car. The the, the, the person who ran the activity thought I was dead. Uh, I just bounced on the grass. The cart went against the brick wall that was on the back of it. Uh, and it sort of tumbled out of control. I just kind of lay there like that. I went, oh, that didn't work. Okay. <laughs> and they made, they made me get up. I went, are you all right? I went, yes, yeah, I'm fine. They went, right, well, you can drive the cart back to the pits then, can't you? So I did. <laughs> and this was my this is my invitation. When I saw the times, I thought, wow, it was 2.3 seconds quicker than everyone else. This was my indication as a kid. I'm meant to be a racing driver then. This is what I'm good at. And it, I was never good at anything at that age. That was the one thing I, I had that was good. And I begged with my mother, begged with my dad. It's like, come on, this is the one sport I can do. Now, my sister was doing equestrianism. She was doing horse riding. Yeah. So 
very expensive sport already. And she had asked first. So, you know, she had asked first and that's fair enough. So they were like, well, your sister's really doing horse riding at the moment. So I thought, right, well, I'll wait until she gives that up. I'll wait until she, (laughs) because she's not going to stick with with this. I love you, JJ. I hope you're okay. Uh, I know she's going to listen. I I knew she would give it up eventually because it's a horrible sport to keep going at. It's so expensive. It's so time consuming. So I think, well, when she gives it up, that's my moment. Unfortunately, then my parents got divorced. So that was it. So that was, it was never going to happen. We were never going to find any money. My dad didn't want to go chasing after money. My mother didn't want to visit me in a hospital. So that was it. Dream over. Gig done. That was it. And I used to try. So like 13, 14, 15 years old, I would try wherever possible to sort of, there there used to be a, a, a sort of a dirt track that used to have sort of banger racing and destruction derby racing yeah. there would be like three or four miles from my house i used to try and sneak there my mom doesn't know this so i'm actually not listening she I used to try and sneak <laughs> to the track uh whenever i had an opportunity i would cycle to the track and i would try and find a way to sort of smuggle my way into a race drive somewhere with somebody never worked but i kept trying all the time because uh, I, I, I just knew this was what I was going to do. And eventually my mom, you know, she could, she was, she could see I was really frustrated. She could see I was really unhappy about it. And she said, well, you talk about racing cars all the time, Jake. You don't talk about anything else. Why don't you replace Murray Walker when he retires? You know, that's, that's your job. You could be a commentator. Oh yeah, I could do that. And my mum has my support. She, she's supporting me in that decision. Okay, so that's what I'm going to do. Unfortunately, Murray Walker, bless him, he retired in 2001 and I was 15 at the time. So I didn't quite <laughs> time it right. I wasn't quite born early enough to just walk in. Yeah. But that that kind of gave me the motivation. That's what I wanted to do. And yeah, that's, that's kind of how I am where I am now because I, I could have raced if the stars and the planets had aligned. I, I, and I still think now at 36 if the right sponsor came along to back me, I could still give it a go. I could still be okay. I could be handy. See, that's why, honestly, that's why I said there's, there's, a, there's a congruency here between me, you and I, because I felt the same way about racing and mm. I wanted to race motorcycles so bad. And, and I had mm. a, a little Z50 and I wanted to get a 125. My parents split up and I, mm. and that, I knew that was going to, and plus they really went into racing. But I remember when I was, Around six, I was like five or six. My dad took me to a little motocross race. You know, these little mm-hmm. kids were, and I had not, even, I hadn't had a motorcycle yet. And we were watching this kid race, and it was, a, you know, the, the gate dropped, and everybody left except for this one kid. The dad had to help him. Even then, I go, I'm better than that kid right now, <laughs> but I know my dad is not going to put a motorcycle in the trunk of a car and drive me around Oklahoma to race. Yeah. And so I go, okay, I knew the dream was lost in. And I don't know about you, but. Is there a, just a little bit of you still that's like kind of each? I mean, I mean, you, you're happy what you're doing. Get me wrong, but there's a little bit of you say, you know, I kind of wish I was racing. I mean, you ever get a chance? I don't know to do a, maybe a, just a, for fun or whatever, and race guys for fun. But you kind of take it a little more serious than they do, but you don't show it. I mean, because I still had that in me where when I get a chance to race a cart. I love it. I like I raced carts when I went mm. to uh, England for the greatest vacation of my life. I raced in Preston. And I had the greatest time at a karting track there. It was like a, a yeah. it was a, a, a two a two layer. A two layer uh, I've been to that track. Yes. Yeah, yes, I, I, I've been to that track. 
and the and the guy, the people I stayed with, he was a, a wrench for Leon Haslam, and so I would stay with him and his wife. I knew his wife before I knew him. Leon and then, Haslam, and we became best friends. And so we went to that track, and he smoked me. We did like three races. I think I beat him <laughs> once. I think, but he smoked me. But it was the great, and I still have that in me. I mean, just putting on that racing suit, you put mm. on that helmet and the glove and the smell. I always say NLR, nothing like racing. That's what I say. There's nothing like racing. So when you, that, that sound and when it's, the, the, everything starts up and you smell mm. that burning oil, nothing beats. So is there a little bit of you that still has that, like, uh, well, I can't say regret, but just like, oh, I wish I would have raced. I tell you now, there's a little bit of me that still thinks that. There's absolutely, yeah, to, totally. Um, do you know there's a, there's a competitor that's racing in the European Championship this year. The youngest kid on the grid is 13 guy called Freddie Slater, British kid. He was the world champion in junior in 2020. He was the European junior champion last year, but he's the youngest senior on the grid. He's about to turn 14, which is the minimum age you can race, but you're allowed to race in the year you turn 14. So he's the youngest kid on the grid. The oldest driver on the grid this year is, I hope she doesn't take offense at me saying this, but a fascinating and fabulous racer called Sofia Kotala. She's from Finland. And she's married to the guy who talent spotted Tukatapanen. So Yussi Katala discovered Tukatapanen, who's the current world champion in karting. Uh, and Sophia decided a couple of years ago, I'm going to race. And she started her first race at professional karting level, aged 40. And now wow. she's 46 and she's in the European Championship. And she's only about 1.6, 1.7 seconds on average away from the top of the game. And I sit there and think, Wow, she's doing that at 46. I'm 36. I've got, I've still got plenty of time to go for this. So, so yeah, I, 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 do you know, this year, this year, I have started seriously considering it. I don't know if it's going to happen end of this year, partway through next year, partway through the year after that, but there's still a pang. There's always been a pang of, I really want to go and do this. And so many people have said to me, well, why don't you just do it? Why don't you just do it? Why don't you find a way to do it? I have zero money. That's the only problem. That's the only thing that's holding don't me back is zero way. money. Don't look but, at it that way. Don't look at it that but way. But the other thing I, I think is that I've got so many friends in this industry now that I've made yes. who want to see this happen. There's kind of a, an indication from a few teams in a few different championships now that have said, if you can get to this track on this day and you've got a race suit and a helmet, we'll put you in a cart. We'll give you a go. We'll see how fast you can go. And so I'm sort of building up to it. I want to lose a bit more weight first because I'm currently just a touch under 17 stones. I'm just a touch under 108 kilos. It's a bit heavy for karting. So I just want to lose a little bit more. I'm jogging every day. I'm down at the gym every day. Or the days I'm not, I'm in my kayak, which I got given for my birthday. So I'm on the river and I'm just trying to build my upper body strength. So I'm doing a combination of cardio and jogging and uh, sort of gym work with weights to build up my muscles. And then my upper body strength and my uh, waist strength, which I'm going to need when I'm in the cart, to experience the g-forces so i don't crack a rib i'm now doing that on the river with the boat so i'm trying to build myself up a little bit i'm hoping that sort of by september october time when the season slows down i've got a little bit of time to start looking at testing this doing that i have an open invitation to go to ireland to test a tillotson t4 which is kind of a starting point for people who want to experience something professional if you do tillotson t4 first it's a good road 
up to the top of the sport. They have a series in two or three different places in the UK. I think there's an American championship now. There's definitely one in Colombia. There's definitely one in Argentina. Uh, there's a Brazilian championship, I think, starting next year. So there's, there's, there's paths up. There's, there's routes through. So I want to start in Tillotson T4 to get the monkey off my back to kind of scratch the itch. Then I'm going to start moving through X30, do a couple of different championships of X30 in Europe, little one here, little one there, little one there. And I know what my end game is. I have my finishing line, my target, and that is Scusa, Las Vegas. I want to be there for Supercarts USA in Las Vegas at the end of the year, whether it's next year, the year after, whatever. That's my end game. That's my last goal. I want to be there when you're there. Hey, listen, I thought I could do a professional sport till I was about, and I mean it, till I was about 45. And I mean it from the bottom of my heart. This is how I think. I, I, limitless. It'll happen. You do that. You get in shape. Listen, we've got to get out of here. God I tell you what, you, you should do it with me. You should totally do it with me. There's got to be a team in America that will have two seats spare. Let's do it together. Let's absolutely do it together. You're already in the right continent for it. I just need to get on a plane. Let's do it. Why we'll not? talk about this when we get out. Of, I have got to get out. Of. <laughs> I just, I just lit the torch paper. I just we, lit the torch we paper. Both, we both lit the torch. I swear to God, I told you, <laughs> you're like my brother from another English mother. You really are. I know. The, literally, I'm starting to sit. I'm sitting here for this entire time, and I'm sitting here thinking the only thing that's separating us right now is an ocean. That's it. it. That's the only thing. The only thing that's separating. The us. only thing. We're like this. I knew we were, but now <laughs> we're like this now. Jake Sanson, yes, damn it. I love you, brother. Listen, you go after that dream. I mean it from the bottom of my heart. We got to get out of here. If you get a chance, the founder of Downforce Radio, he is the voice of uh, the World Karting Championships. If you didn't love Jake Sanson after this, I, I, just go jump in a hole because honestly, <laughs> this guy is great. Even it, 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 He is what you think he is and even more. Thank you for your time, Jake. I appreciate it. Thank We're going to have a part two. This is after you win and after you get that karting seat. We're going to part two and you better do that absolutely i will hold i will hold you to that we'll definitely do it thank you so much for your time jake thank you guys for watching tales from a gemini i mean it from the bottom of my heart and you know how i say about this time when it's all over